Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Galatians 2. That's where we're going to start, or Galatians 3, actually, this week. I want to start off this morning by just the power of name-calling. Uh, name-calling is something that just carries a lot of power with it. I once made my best friend in elementary school through the power of name-calling. We, uh, we threw rocks at each other from across the street, and we called out names to each other, bad names to each other. Kids don't have business cards to exchange, and they don't have the means to go have a coffee, so that's how they have to build friendships. So that's how it worked out for me. When you grow up, you're supposed to stop calling names, right? Does it happen? Yeah, it does. It just doesn't happen, right? Now, it's, it's usually frowned upon. It usually, it's usually something like this. People resorted to calling names, right? That, that's indicating that as grown-ups, you shouldn't be acting, you know, like first graders and calling each other names. But it means that you've either run out of good arguments, right? And so you just resort back to like third grade for a moment. Or you're just so frustrated in it that you kind of, that you kind of go in this direction of name calling. I bring up name calling because right here in the Bible, we have Pastor Paul calling his congregation foolish two times and asking who has bewitched them, saying basically, you're under a spell, okay? It sounds like just run-of-the-mill, good old-fashioned name calling. And when you look at that, you say, what's the deal with Pastor Paul? Why is he, why is he doing this? Is the Bible endorsing this uh, in some way, shape, or form. Is Paul having a bad day? Is he acting juvenile? Like, what's, has he run out of good arguments? So he's just calling them names? Here's what we'll see. Paul is deeply in love with his congregation. He cares for them deeply. When you're in love, you're concerned. And when you're so in love that you're deeply concerned, you will resort to confronting people in love if that's what's needed. And that's what we're going to see Paul do in Galatians 3, as he's calling his congregation, he's calling this little region of churches foolish two different times. Now, there is no shortage of foolishness, right? We kind of live in the land of fools, and there's kind of this whole worldwide web that, you know, connects us all. So we can find foolishness from every corner of the globe uh, at any time. I want you to think for a moment just like the most foolish thing that you have seen or heard recently, okay? Kind of get that, kind of get that locked in your brain. Uh, most of you don't have to search hard in your, in your memory bank for this. Um, now, eye toys are a great way to find, you know, other people's foolishness, and we're kind of entertained, right, by this whole websites dedicated to the foolishness of other people. Korean dance sensation Sai, right, he was out horseback riding one day, evidently, and got inspired to start a new dance. And all of a sudden, we just saw this everywhere, right? Some of you are like, I'm going to have to Google that. I don't know what that is. This other guy writes this really, really dramatic song, right? And so that became this new foolishness and stuff. It used to be that like a burping baby or a dancing cat was all that it took to entertain us. But people around the world have really stepped up their game. They're going, they're going nuts with it. Now, the most, the most uh, foolish thing that I've seen recently, but, but it's strangely amusing, is this age-old question that evidently millions of people around the world are asking, and that is this, what does the fox say? Now, some of you know immediately what I'm talking about. Others of you, again, you're just on a Google mission this afternoon. You're like, I just didn't get any of what Dave was talking about. Let me just prep you. You're not missing much, okay? Uh, go, you can go Google it, but you're really not missing a ton. Now, the Bible talks, the Bible talks a ton about foolishness. The Bible speaks of fools all the time. Sometimes foolishness is just good old-fashioned stupid mixed with a good dose of arrogance, okay? We've all known that person. We've probably been that person in hopefully short seasons of our life. But most often when the Bible is talking about a fool, 
Instead of talking about somehow like a lack of intelligence, it's usually a lack of obedience. That's the direction the Bible takes it. I want to throw up a few verses um, on screen, and what you can start to see is a, is a pattern. The fool says there's no God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools are complacent. Those who slander, the Bible says, are fools. They're using their mouth in a foolish way. It goes on to say this, that, that the way of, fool is, uh, of a fool is right in his own eyes, so they're arrogant. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And look at Proverbs 14.9. Fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. Now, I've just grabbed a, a small little smattering of verses from the Psalms and from the Proverbs. Now, they talk a lot about wise and foolish people in those, in those books, but, but it's all through the scripture, and the Bible paints a picture of, here's what foolishness really is. Here's what a fool really is. And again, most often, it's not a lack of intelligence, but a lack of obedience. So these last two slides are just kind of a portrait of, of the fool who is worldly and rebellious. So, so what about these Galatians? Is that the Galatians? Is that what they were doing? Is that the problem Paul was correcting as he came in and called them foolish? I want to read the passage with you, but, but they weren't. They weren't running wild. That's not the kind of fools they were. The Bible speaks of those kinds of fools, but instead, I want you to think of this. There's a, there's a different word used that has the connotation, the idea of just being spiritually dull. And that's really the, the Galatians problem. They weren't running wild. They weren't denying God's existence. They weren't running with other foolish people. They were spiritually dull. And that's why he's calling them foolish. So let me read the passage. Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, um, starting in verse 1. Here he is. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let me pause there. God, as we hear your word, as we've just heard your word, I pray this morning that uh, even my words, what's going on here, the the songs that are led, God, the way that this is being received, I pray that we would move forward in this by faith. God, not out of human effort. In Jesus' name, amen. So these dear Galatian Christians had lost something. Okay, They, they were lost, in fact. They hadn't lost their salvation. Uh, losing your salvation is impossible because God is going to finish what he began. So they hadn't lost their salvation. That's not what's, what's being lost. But you can be, you can be a Christian and be, and be wandering and lost. Right? So, so here they are lost. So, so what had they lost? They had lost their joy. They had lost their freedom. They had lost the power that it is to walk in the Spirit, to, to realize their saved status and walk in that. The reason they had done this is because of this. They had substituted something that was real for an imposter. And the imposter was impotent. No power in it. No joy in it. No freedom in it. And they had made that exchange at some point in time. And so Paul is going to basically load up his guns and start to 
um, use some of his most forceful language over the next 60 verses, a couple of chapters, he's going to basically pull out his gun and just start shooting. And here's what he's shooting at. He's shooting at the falsehood. He's trying to destroy the lie that they had bought into, and he's trying to build up and illuminate and show them the truth. Look, you're lost. You're, you're wandering over here. Who's put you under a spell? That's what bewitched has to do with. So he's going to use all these different things and try to, try to convince them and try to talk to them. Here is his premise that, that he has, that God saves and grows sinners through faith and not through human effort. So for the next couple of weeks, he is driving this point home. Now, this idea should feel somewhat familiar because he's basically been trying to establish uh, some of the nuance of this for a couple of chapters in in Galatians now. And what he's going to do is he's going to take all these different things, personal experience and scripture and logic and history and sentiment and allegory. He's going to take all these things and he's just going to start loading up and firing at them. This morning, we're just going to look at the first two, personal experience and scripture. We're going to take his first two arguments. But if you were to read this, I challenge you, please, congregation, read Galatians start to finish once a week during the series. What happens is we take the Bible, it was written as a letter, and we look at a little chunk of it, because there's so much there to learn from, but then we come back a week later, and we're trying to kind of pick things up. Then you miss a week, or you skip a week, or you forget a week, and, and you're kind of picking up. So I would just challenge you, read the flow of it. So that once a week, once every other week, you're just reading through all of Galatians at one sitting. So you can kind of see some of this flow and logic of of where he's pointing to. So the next couple of weeks, he's going to be driving this point home. And he's going to be kind of using all these things. Okay, So let's start with personal experience. What was their experience? Look look, look at verse 1. There was the public preaching of Christ. They 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 had been given publicly the message of the gospel. Look at verse 2. They heard and believed the message. So a lot of people hear the gospel, right? I heard the gospel for a long time before I ever really heard it and believed it. There's a difference between hearing and hearing, right? And so I started to listen and receive it, and, and that's what they had experienced too. Look at verse 2. They also received the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's appealing to them. Think about what you have experienced. Think about what is going on. I just want to point to your own experience here. Verse 4, they suffered and experienced many things as a new Christian, right? And some of you are, are relatively new Christians, and you can think back, yeah, my, my life's changed a lot. It's been great, but it's been difficult, right? And some of you have to go back a ways to think of when you first got saved and how, how radically different you started to, to think through things. I sat back here last week and talked to a person, and he said, yeah, all of a sudden my sensitivity to sin is like just skyrocketing. Things I had no problems doing before, now I have a problem doing. I'm like, praise God, that's the Holy Spirit in you. The flesh just says, no problems, go go green light on that, but the Holy Spirit changes us. And now look at verse 5, he switches to the present tense. Miracles are happening in their midst. Present tense. So what Paul's saying here is, I want to point to your own experience. How did all this take place? You guys lived it. You experienced these things. His question is this. Does this free gift that came by faith require you now to keep it going by human effort? I mean, how did you get the Spirit in the first place? It was a gift, right? It was just responded to by faith, and here it came. So now does it need your help to, to keep things going? 
These newer Christians were experiencing growing pains. Now, if you have kids, you have uh, kids that sometimes come to you with physical growing pains, right? And we went through a lot of those. And spiritually, it's the same way. Here's these young baby Christians, and they were growing up in the Lord. The remedy that Paul is offering here is this. He's going to say this. Continue in the way that you started. You started by faith. Continue walking in that. Here's what Paul's getting at. He's getting at two kind of big ideas, um, and, and the Bible uses them, and we just sung this word, so it's good to t- talk about these words, right? He's talking about the idea of justification. Justification is that moment in time when you are healed, when you're forgiven, when you're made right with God. It's your birth. Remember Jesus says you must be born again? How many times are you born? Once, and it happens in an instant, Right? And then he's talking about, he's kind of moving on to this word sanctification. Sanctification is that process that now continues every day of your new Christian life until you die or until Jesus comes back. That's the, that's a process. That goes on over and over. That's your new life. So you're born once, that's justification. But every moment after that, you fill up your lungs with air, right? You move, you think, you walk forward, you grow, you change. That's living your life. That's sanctification. And what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying just as you started off, just as you were born by faith, God came to you by faith. You received the Holy Spirit by faith. These miracles are happening by faith. So continue in that. It doesn't mean that now that you're older that that you uh, somehow don't need that. Look at our title. Our title is Never Outgrow the Gospel. This is both a spiritual reality to just ponder and trust in, but it's also marching orders for us to obey. There's like an action in here that says, man, I need to walk forward and and not get ahead of that and not think that I'm somehow beyond that. The way you started is the way that you will finish the race. It is by faith. Okay, So Paul uses personal experience. Now he's going to move on to to scripture. He's going to point back to their scripture. What's the Galatian scripture at this point? It's the Old Testament, right? So he's going to point back to God's redemptive history. Here is how God works. Here's how God moves. This is your own history. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember the Judaizers, right? Who are the Judaizers? They're the ones coming in. They're the false teacher. They're wolves that have slapped on sheep's clothing, and they're leading people away. They're devouring people with heresy. Jesus is great. The cross is great. That's fantastic. Now, there's a few additional things for you to become a real Christian. Because Christ's work isn't enough. You must help it. That's what they were saying. Now, hear me clearly. That's false. That's wrong. Don't hear me as a false teacher. They were the bad guys. These are the ones Paul's coming against, saying, don't believe that for a second. That leads to cold, dead religion. You can never do anything to wash away yesterday's sin, today's sin, or tomorrow's sin. It's a finished work. Don't buy into that. But the Judaizers were pointing to Abraham as being on their side. They were using Abraham as kind of a, an exhibit one for their defense, saying, hey, look at Abraham. Here's what Paul's going to do. He just talked about their personal experience, okay? And now he's going to move on to Abraham. He's going to say, look, Abraham's on our side. Abraham is preaching the same message I'm preaching. So, let's read uh, 6 to 9. Follow along with me, uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 3. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Key sentence. And the scripture, 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When you see the word faith that many times in a couple verses, it's kind of important, right? It's being repeated. That little drumbeat is there, and so you should be looking at that. Paul's using illustrate to, uh, using Abraham to illustrate his point. Now, if you want kind of the extended dance remix version of this short passage, go to Romans 4 and read the whole chapter, okay? That's, this is like the little simplified condensed version. Paul takes in Romans 4 and he just goes into this. He's going to talk about circumcision and rights and all kinds of different things and, and all that. So go read Romans 4 as kind of a companion to this. But here's the, the nutshell. Abraham's blessing was by faith and not by flesh. That's it. So Father Abraham is not just father of the Jews and the Jewish nation, but he's the father of faith. What Paul's saying is this, that spiritual descent is more important, it's more weighty than the physical descent. And God told us that a long time ago because he knew he'd be justifying the Gentiles. That's what he's getting into with that. Now, what kind of faith is it? It's saving faith, which is worlds different from kind of a general faith or a generic faith. Look look at verse 6. Notice that it doesn't say that he believed in God, but that what? He believed God. Would you agree with me that there's a giant difference? Yeah. I mean, you can believe in God without believing God. I mean, demons have enough good sense to believe in God, but they don't believe God. So Abraham had a saving faith, and it was expressed by his life. Think about this. He was a childless, um, they were a childless couple, him and his wife. And God comes and says, through you, I'm going to create a nation. It had to be a miracle because they, they were well advanced in years, the Bible says. But what did, what did Abraham do? He believed God. He trusted him. God's going to provide. God says it's going to happen. I believe him. Later on, that same son, God says, I want you to take that son. I want you to go up this mountain and I want you to worship me by sacrificing him. What Abraham knew is that all the pagan nations who didn't have God, they were doing crazy things like that, sick, evil things like that to appease their false demonic gods. What does Abraham do? He goes on a hike with his son. When his son notices, hey, uh, we have the wood, we have fire, uh, everything perfect for a sacrifice, except one thing, Dad. Right? Where's the, where's the ram? Where, what are we going to sacrifice? And what was his answer? His answer was this, and this is evidence that he trusted him. God will provide the ram. He didn't know the end of the story. He doesn't know how it ties up. He just trusted God. He believed God, and it was evidenced by his lifestyle. So, Paul is saying, look at redemptive history. The father of the Jews was justified by faith. Here's my question. What about you? Having started off well, by faith, receiving the free gift of eternal life that someone told you about because they preached the the gospel to you, have you somehow fallen off course and fallen into human effort? Maybe that's some of you in this room today. I think the interesting thing is that you could look at this and say, well, I guess then if it's just by faith, I had a guy in men's group say this, I hope he was joking, but he goes, um, he goes, man, I'm lazy. I mean, I'm lazy. I I took this free gift easily. I was like, yeah, score. 
So does that mean that, great, there's no human effort involved. We shouldn't move forward in that. We should just sit back and relax. Well, the Bible makes it really, really clear. You were saved for a purpose, right? You were created for what? Good works. But do you see that it's worlds different to go after that to get God's acceptance than to go after that because you're accepted by God, right? So Abraham didn't sit back and go, whoo, I'm in. He sat back, received it, I'm in. And then when God said, hey, get up off your duff and go that way, he said, okay, I'm going to go do it. Now go do this. Now go do that. What did, what did, what did God have planned for Abraham? I'm going to make, I'm going to bless you, not so you can hoard it, but so you can be a blessing to the nations, right? So it is with us. I want to tell you, um, I want to illustrate this with a story. I'm three-quarters of the way through a book called The Cross and the Switchblades, a guy by the name of David Wilkinson. David Wilkinson was a young kid. He was in elementary school, and he was being picked on by a bully. And he was a Christian. He trusted God, and he was in that moment. And while he was in that moment, God brought a verse to mind that says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So in that very moment, he goes back to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and God puts that in his little heart. And he stands up to the bully by doing this. The bully's there, he's new to town, and the, and the bully's starting to kind of challenge him. And he just looked at him and smiled. He didn't say a word. And no one else was around, but the bully went away the next day at school telling everyone that David Wilkerson was the toughest guy he ever faced. And he was the, he was the class bully. So he said he got this ridiculous reputation because he was called a name, right? The power of name going. He was called a tough guy. So he said, I had this ridiculous, um, you know, reputation through the rest of elementary school in that little town as being the tough guy, even though he never did anything. Well, God takes this country preacher who's comfortable preaching in the hills of Pennsylvania, and he begins to stir in him to go to New York City. He shows up in the, in the absolute armpit of New York City. He goes to find the worst place of New York City, the toughest gangs of New York City. And while he's there, he's facing real evil. He's facing real threat. And he said, in that moment, I'm there, and I begin to be overwhelmed with a sense of, who am I? I don't know the first thing about street life. I'm naive to the language of what's going on. I'm not carrying a weapon, nor do I know how to use it, nor do I know any of that stuff. Who am I with all of this? And God brings this same verse to his mind. Zechariah 4.6. By my spirit, not by your might, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. And he says, as, he, as he's now facing this very um, adult bully, he just said, man, th- this, this peace overcame me. And, and he began to move forward in that. And the cross and the switchblade is, is kind of his story of how he, he, he marches into that. Now, what he does is he enters the fight. He moves his young family to the very heart of the problems. This is a picture of him exchanging weapons for Bibles. Okay? That was started long ago, uh, and, and he picked up on it, so, so he decides to, to do that. This guy on the left in the upper picture is a guy by the name of Nicky Cruz. Nicky Cruz was the hardest kid that he faced. He threatened his life the first time he met him on the streets of New York City. But David enters the fight, moves his young family to the heart of the problems, and finished his race two years ago. He died in an automobile accident. Because he walked by faith and not by his own strength, God used him to help countless people overcome addiction, leave gang life, and live transformed lives. A couple decades ago, he actually started a church 
in an area of Manhattan that was known for uh, X-rated clubs, um, pimps, and dealers. And he starts a church right in the midst of that. And God begins to take, uh, take those people and just transform lives. And what's powerful about this book is, is all the way through the work, he keeps finding himself in this place where he's frustrated and he, he can't figure out what's going on. He's realizing, I'm bringing myself to it. I'm bringing myself to them. And they don't need David Wilkerson. They need Jesus Christ to transform them. And so every time, he has to kind of recalibrate and move forward in a different way. He accomplished this by faith and not by his own effort. Now, you've heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you an image that is going to take some of you back to the moment that you believed. The moment that you trusted Christ for the very first time. And for, for others of you who, who may have never made that decision, I want to give you a picture of what it looks like to, to be justified, to receive by faith in that, in that moment of trust. And here it is. Okay, that's my son Eli on 4th of July. And I have a question for you. What special talent does he have to be doing what he's doing? Here it is. Nada, right? There's nothing at all. The reason the kid's wearing a life vest is because with his head, he sinks like an anchor. I've never seen a kid sink so fast as this guy. But but he needs help, right? So is his success dependent on him or on something else? Say something else. Thank you. You've got it. Um, so then you ask the question, well, why is he doing this? He's doing this because he has a dad in the pool that's waiting for him. He's doing this because the sheer joy of jumping. I mean, this kid was made to jump. He loves to do this. But, but most of all, Eli is doing this because of one simple word, trust. I told him to. I told Eli, get up here and jump to me. And you know what? He trusts me. He trusts me as a good dad. He trusts me that I'll catch him. So he partnered with me. I couldn't force him to jump. I could have shoved him. Would have built some trust issues, huh? I just said jump, and he trusted me, and he leapt. Now, if you know kids, what, what kids do is after they do it once, what do they want to do? Again, right? That was him charging at the end. He wants to do that again. He'll do that again and again and again. Christian. I want you to remember your first love. I want you to remember what it was like to just leap and go, I still have doubts, I still have questions. I'm not totally sure about this. But I trust the guy in the pool. I trust my father's good. I believe in this. And so I'm taking this leap of faith. Here's what I don't want you to ever forget. The Christian life begins with a leap of faith, but it continues, hear this, with a walk of faith. Go back to this look on Eli's face right here. This is what it looks like, not just to start your Christian walk, but you can finish, you can continue and finish your Christian walk with this same joy on your face. I want to wrap up by asking you a couple of questions. I don't know if in here this morning we have a fool. Maybe you're a fool. 
Maybe someone in this room would say, you know what? As those scriptures came up about what a foolish person was, that's me. I'm not dumb, but I'm worldly. I am living my life right now for that which doesn't satisfy. I'm living my life right now for things that I'm pretty sure aren't going to last. They haven't lasted up to this point. And it's getting more and more of a tangled mess as I go forward. Today, Jesus can save you. I mean, in a moment, he can just pull you right out of that. Today, the exchange is this. You can exchange your life of slavery to sin in the joy of walking in freedom with Christ. It's it. That simple. So if there's an action item for someone who's that kind of fool, here it is. Call on God today and be saved. That's it. If that's you, you could right now stand up and say, that's me, would you pray for me? And I will. I'll pray for you right now. That's it. Nothing magical or mystical. I don't have to sprinkle you with anything. You don't have to fill out a card or anything or clap three times. You just call out on the Lord and you will be saved. No more playing the fool. I'm done with that. That's that's fool number one. Maybe you're fool number, number two. You're not worldly, but you're spiritually dull. Now, Paul actually had good precedence for calling his congregation foolish because Jesus does so. Jesus is talking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember this? After his resurrection? He's talking with them about different things. And he's, he's asking them questions. And then he says this in Luke chapter 24. He says, and then he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Not name-calling, not belittling, not verbal abuse. It's calling out what they are. It's waking them up. Oh, spiritually dull ones, spiritually sleepy ones. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he goes on to lead them in the coolest Bible study probably known to man. I mean, he just begins to show them from the prophets, from the Old Testament, all the things that point to himself. And then with kind of this flair for dramatic, it ends really cool. You've got to go read it yourself. So the action item for the spiritually dull is quite simply to wake up. Listen to Romans 13.11. It says this, This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Maybe you're not fool number one or fool number two. Maybe you're bewitched. Maybe you've lost your way. Maybe you started off with with this great intention and this leap of faith and you totally trusted and you said, I get it, I'm done boasting in anything I can do. God, it's all you. And then as error does, it just seduces us. We just slowly start to kind of veer off course, don't we? I mean, if it was a giant, big, blinding thing, we'd probably be wise to it and not go that route. But slowly we start to get seduced and veer off the path. And maybe you're finding yourself today trusting, boasting in something else. Let me, let me paint a picture of what, of what this spell takes the form of for people who are, 
who are under its power. It takes the form of bartering with God. I did this, therefore, God, you owe me. Why are things not turning out? I've done all this for you. Do you hear it? You're, you're kind of under a hex right there. You're starting to think that somehow your effort, um, you're, you're in some kind of an exchange with an almighty eternal being. And that you have something to bring to the table. It could kind of flip around the other way. I really want this to be true. I really want this thing to happen in the future. Therefore, I'm going to. And then you fill it in. I'm going to show up at church on a Sunday. <laughs> Some of you might be here saying, yeah, that's kind of me. I want this at Christmas time. So I'm showing up at church. I was even on time and I'm taking notes. I really want this to be done. So I'm going to work really hard and redouble my efforts at prayer and holding my tongue and not cutting people off and not being judgmental and doing all these different things. Do you hear it? It's just a barter system. Friends, you're, you're bewitched. You're under a spell. If we think we can kind of manipulate God into loving us more or accepting us more, because we've done these things, we're going to pay penance by these actions, and it'll make it all better. It also takes the form of those who started off serving with passion for God, but then it either sours into holding up appearances. Sometimes people say, man, you are such a servant. You're just such a servant. And that used to be true, but somewhere somewhere along the road, it became you upholding that appearance of being a servant. And now you're like, man, I'm typecast as the servant. I should have picked a better one, right? You're like, ah, oh, and you're just, in your mind, you're just grumbling. What's the outward look like? Got to uphold appearances, right? So you do it joyfully, apparently. You smile. You jump at the request. But, but inwardly, you're, you're just, you're just bitter. It's soured into something totally different. Sometimes you start off serving with a passion for God, and then at some point, you, you, you get this crazy notion that it all depends on you. This is certainly true of, of most pastors I know. It's a battle that almost every full-time missionary I've ever talked to knows about. They go out in the mission field, and they're babies. They go, what? What could I possibly do to help these people? I don't know their language, their customs. I'm, I'm a noob at everything in their life. God, it's all you. It has to be you. And they start every day on their knees praying to God. And then at some point, what happens for a pastor, for a minister, for someone who's, who's a lay person but, in, but, but, but been involved in ministry, is you begin to gain some really good experience, Right? David Wilkinson went to New York City as a country preacher not knowing a single thing. After a while, he knew the streets really, really well. And the danger for, for those of us, those of you who've walked and served and God's done great things through you, as you start to think it really depends on you. That somehow you're the center of it and that your skills are what's accomplishing it. And, and God always will bring that crashing down. He will always point out to you, Dave, you can't transform a single heart for a moment. So it's not about you. And that's really wounding to the pride, and it's really freeing to the spirit. You know what it is? It's just sucking the poison out. That's veering off the truth. That's being under the spell. And that's the person who's the martyr. 
They have this grand vision for God and all the more things that could be done, but they're frustrated when other people don't join. So it all depends on them and they push out. And then at some point, that just, that just sours. The action item here is this. It's for God, by the way. It's not really for you, but here's our part. God wants to transform you. God wants to transform you. Our part is this. Let him. Let him do it. Cooperate with him. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world where it's all about you. Remember last week? It's all about your transcript. It's all about your resume. Don't be conformed to that way of thinking. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here's the translation. Get your thinking straight. Get your thinking straight about all of this. You are not too old for the gospel. Finish this race the way that you began this race, by faith in the one who has brought you thus far. I want to invite the band up, and I want to close with a quote from John MacArthur on this whole notion. You say, well, well, Dave, we're supposed to do it by faith, but we're not supposed to relax. We're, we're, we're made for good works, but how do we know if we're doing it in the flesh or in the spirit? I want to close with a quote that I hope sends you out with encouragement. He says this, The validity of good works in God's sight depends on, catch this, whose power they are done in and for whose glory. You want kind of a litmus test to say, is this from God or is this somehow self-serving? Whose power are you doing it in and for whose glory? That's That's a great two little simple questions to kind of ask that. He goes on to say this, when they are done in the power of the Holy Spirit and for His glory, they are beautiful and acceptable to Him. When they are done in the power of the flesh and for the sake of personal recognition or merit, they are rejected by Him. Legalism is separated from true obedience by attitude. The one is rotten, the one is a rotten smell in God's nostrils, whereas the other is a sweet savor. Tonight I want to invite you if the Spirit is leading you to join us here at the church um, at 3.30, and I'll give you a ride, or at Santa Clara First Baptist at 4 o'clock, we have our annual San Francisco Homeless Outreach. And we've been growing our pile of stuff in the back, and people are giving that by faith, saying, God, would you take this beanie and do some spiritual work in it? And tonight, a group of us from a couple of different churches are going to go wander the streets of San Francisco, and in the name of Jesus, we're going to pour out blessing on people. We're going to meet with people. We're going to put our arms around people. We're going to pray for people. Uh, Odds are, will be prayed for. That happens every year. So I want to invite you to come, but I want you to come in the Spirit. I want you to come and say, God, this is is totally for you. Do you see how you can come and, and not be worried about safety, not be worried about some of the things that the flesh would naturally want to go into that situation and worry about? You say, we're on God's mission for God's glory in God's power. What's going to harm us? And if we are harmed, it's got to be for his glory. It's got to be a part of his plan. So that's one invitation. Second invitation is this. It's begun. I don't know if you've seen it, but Christmas lights, Christmas music, uh, pretty soon, the day after July is going to be called something, and we'll start the Christmas season. It's coming, friends. In the Christmas season, there's a mindset around here that it's about gifts and presents and 
getting together and eating, and that's all great and fine. I'm not against any of that. But people are going to be spiritually stirred in December. It happens every single year. How can we as a church, how can we collectively get this right? How can we live out this thing? Say, God, you did a great work. You started this church seven years ago afresh in this brand new thing, and it was done by faith. How can we sustain that, God? How can we walk forward in that together by faith? Not by our own piddly effort. We're just not that great. God, it's got to be you. So in this Christmas season as it's coming up, there's going to be two services on the 22nd. That's kind of our Christmas service. That's our normal thing, right? Two services. We want to pack this place out. There are people that, that long for and need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be preached on Sunday, the 22nd. And then on the 24th, Christmas Eve, we're going to have two more services. And we've just got some neat things planned about how, how to just communicate this message of love that God has. Here's my, here's my ask of all of you. Can you join with me in making sure that we march forward in this by faith, working and walking in the Spirit, and not just in flesh? You know what would sicken me as a pastor? To just do churchy stuff all the time. I would have lasted about a month in this role if it was just, okay, here's what churches do. Go do churchy, pastory stuff. That would drive me bonkers, honestly. This would be a terrible, terrible role. But the life of the Spirit, and many of you in this room know this and testify to this all the time. The life of the Spirit is wild. It's an adventure. It's exciting. Here's what we're going to do in December. In the month of December, we're going to take Wednesday nights, and I'm going to lead just a prayer time, one hour, one hour a week, Wednesdays in December, leading up to these services, and you're all invited. You're all invited to come for one hour, and we're just going to cry out to God. We're just going to say, God, this has to be from you. Would you do this? Would you grow what, what wants to be done? You know what would be tragic? If we put all of our eggs in four services, right? Hey, we got someone to church. Don't bring people to church. Bring them to Jesus. That's the message. They don't need this church. They need Jesus. Now, God can use the local family and... Don't hear me. I I do want him to come to the service. I'm not saying that. But let's keep our focus right. So Wednesdays in December, join me in prayer so that your times through the midweek in between these services would would stir up. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. I, I just thank you, God, how you preach this message to my heart and my life this week in a powerful and profound way. Thank you for the the chains that come off when we have our thinking straight. God, for Christians this morning, would they remember the face of Eli? Would they they remember that leap of faith that they took? God, for those who would long to trust you and not just believe in you, but believe you, I pray that right now in this moment, God, they would say, that's me. I yield. I cry out to you, God. Would you save me? And we know, we trust your promises that you will come in and transform their life, free them from their sin, welcome them in to a new life. In Jesus' name we pray.